Please be seated. We are doing a sermon series right now in the book of 1 Samuel, and so in our first scripture reading, we are reading the opposite, reading from uh, the New Testament, and specifically uh, for, a number, for a month or two here, we're reading from the book of Philippians. Uh, Elizabeth Venter uh, is going to come and read for us from Philippians 2. Elizabeth. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are continuing uh, with a series in 1 Samuel this morning. And before uh, we read today's text, I just want to say a few things. Uh, why do we study a book like 1 Samuel? Because in, in, a, in books like 1 Samuel, these historical books, we see how God is reigning and ruling as king. We see him raise up priests and leaders and kings like Samuel. We've talked about in the, in the past few weeks. And today, particularly, we see him lowering and, and taking away priests and leaders and kings. See, First uh, Samuel starts in, in a bad way. But what we see is God putting things right. God the king, he, he's coming in he, to change things around. And in First Samuel 4, we're, we're going to see how God is make, taking some dramatic steps to that end. But first of all, if you turn your attention to the scriptures... It's on the back middle part of your bulletin or, you know, scroll down or whatever. Ed is going to come and read it for us. Ed, if you would. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to the battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? 
And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his, tor his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God had been, has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the, woman, the women attending her said to her, do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. In the classic Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know I couldn't do a sermon about the Ark of the Covenant without talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford, he's in a race with the Nazis to find and secure the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Indiana Jones is interested in the Ark of the Covenant because, as everyone knows, he's very fond of museums, archaeology. His interests are, are, are purely, purely good. But the Nazis, on the other hand, they want the Ark because of its power. Now, the best line in the movie comes when Indiana Jones is explaining to a few clueless people uh, what the Ark is, and he sarcastically asks them, didn't you ever go to Sunday school? That's the best line in the movie. But another good line, and one really more befitting our particular passage, is Indiana Jones's friend Marcus is explaining why the Nazis want the Ark. And he says, quote, an army that carries the Ark before it is invincible. 
The Nazis want to win the war, they want to rule the world. It's, it's kind of basically during the Second World War is when the movie takes place. The Ark for the Nazis is a mean to an end. An army that carries the Ark before it is invincible. Now in today's text, you can already tell, there are interesting parallels between the ancient Israelites and the, the Nazis, at least from the movies. The Israelites have the Ark, it belongs to them, it was given to them by God, and they got the idea somehow, much, uh, much like the Nazis, that this could be helpful in our battles. Once they start losing, they, they, they wonder to themselves, well, what if we had the Ark right here? W- would that make us invincible? Wouldn't that help us against our enemies? And before we get too harsh on these Israelites, I don't think it's as crazy as it sounds. If you think back, if you know the book of Joshua at all, when Israel first enters the land of Israel in their conquest, the ark is the first thing into the land. The priests carry it into the middle of the Jordan River and God parts the waters around the ark. And then the first major battle in the promised land, they go to fight against Jericho. What leads the procession as they march around and around the city? It's the ark. And back in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 10, whenever Israel moved from place to place, like whenever they kind of packed up their camp and moved to a different place, the priests would come in and get the ark. They'd kind of put the poles through the, the handles. And as the ark was being moved, Moses was, most, was supposed to say these words, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. So look, many decades, maybe hundreds of years, had passed since the early conquest of Israel. But these stories, this history, was still rattling around their heads. What if we had the ark? What if it was right here? Would that make us invincible? But of course, it all goes terribly wrong. The the, the plan is foiled, the ark is captured, and back at home, the response to this news leads to more death. How should we think about this text? Are we just supposed to feel bad? Like, man, what a bummer. Is there anything here for, you know, Christians living in Ottawa, you know, 2023? I think so. Let's talk about it in two ways. First part will be the ark and what I'm going to call power religion. This whole business of bringing the ark into battle. Well, that'll be part one. And second, we'll talk about Ichabod. What does it mean that God's glory is leaving this child that's being born? All, All these things that are going on. So first, the ark and power religion. The first three chapters of of Samuel, if you've been here the the first few weeks, they were all focused around Samuel. Uh, But the narration in the book really takes a turn in chapter four. And for the next three chapters, it's not going to, we're not going to hear anything about Samuel. All we're going to talk about is the ark. It's going to kind of, you know, zoom out from what Samuel is doing over here and, and zoom into some battles and some adventures that the ark has in foreign lands. Why is that? Well, even though this book bears Samuel's name, the story isn't about him. What I've been trying to say all the way along is that it's about God as king. It's about what God is doing amongst his people. Samuel is going to be a big part of it, one of the biggest characters, one of the most important characters, but he's not the most important. God is king. So in this story, in the course of time, Israel comes to fight against the Philistines. Uh, They were a seafaring people. They were actually originally from Crete. They had Cretan ancestors. And they had established five sort of city-states on the coast at the southern end of Israel. And this will become important uh, in future weeks. But think, you know, if you can picture the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean Ocean, it's like down in, in the corner, the southeast corner. If you know where the modern Gaza Strip is, it's very close to that territory. So these people, these Cretans, these Philistines, they were combative and they were conquest hungry. And according to what we know about geography, it's the Philistines who are invading Israel. 
They are camped at this place called Aphek. It was a city on the coastal highway north of their traditional territory. So they are, they are coming out of their territory with an army to pick a fight. Israel is camped at this place called Ebenezer, a short distance away from Aphek, and they get into a battle. That's how the story begins. Israel loses round one. 4,000 men die, which sounds like a lot, but as you're going to see later, lots, lots more die later. But they, they retreat. And they get back to their camp, they get back to Ebenezer, and the elders, you know, all the oldest and wisest men get together, and they ask the question in verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? This is the right question. Not because God showed up in the field of battle and was, you know, swinging away a a sword or whatever, but it's a question that demonstrates that they understand uh, that they they believe in the sovereignty and power of God. Whatever God wills comes to pass. Because they lost, then that means God was in some ways behind their defeat. Simply because it was Philistines on the field of battle with swords and shields does not mean that, that God wasn't behind it. So they have the right question but they get the wrong answer. The answer they come up with is, oh, we were defeated because we didn't have enough God power. For for some reason, God was not on our side. He was on theirs. And so the thinking goes, we need to make God fight harder or get God somehow to fight harder for us. Now, did they consider other answers? Did they seek God's face after their defeat? Did they, hey, let's go find a prophet. Maybe there's someone around here who who could speak to God for us and get a reason. We aren't told, maybe, but I think the silence is damning. But in the middle of verse three, they've decided, they've settled on a course of action. Let's go get the ark, let's send some people to Shiloh, let's get the ark and we'll bring it back. And they believe, on some level, they believe the presence of the ark in the camp or with the, with the army will save them from the power of the Philistines. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? If you're, like, if you're very new to church, you're like, I don't know what this is. It was a wooden box. It was about, uh, made out of acacia wood. It wasn't actually that big, four feet long. You know, my, my directions might not be great. Four feet long, two and a half feet high. It was covered in gold, and it was, ma- it was, a, it was a portable box. It had these rings on the side that poles could slide through so priests could put it on their shoulders and carry it around. And then on top of the, the box, it had a lid, and there was golden cherubim, golden angels on top. And the ark contained three things. This is according to the book of Hebrews. But it contained a copy of the Ten Commandments. It contains Aaron's staff that had budded. And it contained a little golden pot that had some manna from their wilderness days in it. And the ark was a symbol of God's presence with his people. But it also reminded them that God was powerful, that he had provided for them the manna. He'd spoken to them, the Ten Commandments. It is important to note that nowhere in the scriptures is it ever suggested that the ark itself has any power. It it was a symbol. It was not a talisman. It was not a weapon. And it's not even clear that the Israelites thought it had special power. But I think their thinking went like this. If we bring the ark into a battle, then God, our God, the God, he will be forced to intervene on our side. Because his honor is at stake. His, his box is here, and we could, we could force him to intervene because it's his reputation. This is at best sort of like ignorant <laughs> and maybe desperate. Maybe they were feeling desperate. At worst, it's a pressure tactic, trying to twist God's arm. If we have his furniture, then maybe we can channel his power. We, we fought yesterday, we lost. God didn't fight for us then, but now he has to fight for us because we, we brought him in. And even if we can assume the very best about their intentions, they are walking a very dangerous line. But either way, the ark is brought to the camp by 
Hophni and Phineas. Daniel, hashtag foreshadowing. These guys are important. We've heard a prophecy about them, and they are here with the ark. And at the beginning, you're like, the plan is going great. The ark comes to the camp, and there's such a shout. Everyone's so excited and so pumped up that the earth shakes. And the Philistines, miles away, they're scared. They learn Israel. Maybe they have a spy or something. They somehow learn Israel's brought the ark into the camp, and they're like, a god has entered the camp. We've never, we've never fought against a god before. But if you look at verse 8, The Philistines have heard about Israel's God. They're like, oh yeah, we know this God. He did things to Egypt. Now, I think it's kind of funny. They don't get the details exactly right. God did strike Egyptians with plagues, but not in the wilderness, in their own land. But they sort of like, there's like been stories that have been coming out and they're like, they know enough to be afraid. But ironically, that fear and worry about fighting against a God, being enslaved by the Hebrews, it basically is like, they, there's, like a little, there's like a little speech, you know, like someone's, you know, brave hearts at the front of the line being like, we gotta, we gotta fight hard so that they, they, they don't beat us and enslave us. And the Philistines get all pumped up in response. The battle re-engages, the Philistines fight bitterly, and they, and they prevail. And the Israelites are slaughtered by their tens of thousands. And the Ark of God is captured, and Israel flees from the battlefield. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this story? Well, I think we learn about the consequences of power religion. What do I mean by power religion? Power religion is the belief that we can harness God's power to our own own ends. Power religion occurs whenever religious practice, religious belief is taken from its appropriate context and used for a different one. Because like the ark is never intended to be a weapon. It's not supposed to be used in battle. The only times it was ever carried into battle was Jericho, and that was explicitly commanded by God. He said, do this in, you know, in this particular order. And even more than that, the ark had the Ten Commandments inside, and Hophni and Phinehas, two weeks ago we talked about them, they are breaking all kinds of commandments. And they arrive with the ark carrying it as if nothing, nothing's going on. The hypocrisy is staggering. It is clear they don't want to worship God. They don't want to honor God. They want God to give them what they want. And they want to win a battle. And if God can be leveraged into helping them, then great. That's power religion. It's God being used to achieve other ends. Now, the easiest people to pick on when it comes to instances of power religion in our modern culture are politicians. But that's too easy. And frankly, it's not close enough to home. Even even in a city like Ottawa, I don't think that's close enough to home for most of us. So let's talk about prayer for a second. Scriptures tell us to pray. Good. Uh, In Thessalonians, we said, you know, pray without ceasing. Okay, good, right? But sometimes prayer can become, if we can be honest, in our heart of hearts, a tool that we try to use to leverage God. We'll organize something like a 24-hour prayer vigil, or or we'll get on a a real good praying track of our own, and it's very easy to subtly believe that God has to answer us because we've said so many prayers. It's very easy to move from, it's a good thing to ask God to, we've had so many people praying, he has to come through, doesn't he? Something that is good, prayer. Prayer. So that's commanded prayer. It can be taken and twisted and made to serve selfish ends. It's power religion. Let's do another one. And I'll pick on myself slash pastors. When I took my sabbatical this past year, I read a lot of Eugene Peterson. And he talks a lot about what it means to be a pastor, how it feels to be a pastor. And he writes this, and I quote, 
In no other station do we have so many opportunities for pride, for covetousness, and for lust, and so many excellent disguises to keep from being found out. See, what's meant to be good, the job, the life of a pastor, can easily be twisted to serve sinful ends. It's power religion. It's a pastor saying to himself, what I really want out of life is to be respected, and God is a way for me to get respect. And if I ever stop being respected and honored as a pastor, then maybe I don't want to do it anymore. And maybe today you're like, pastors don't really think that, do they? Sociologists have written the large decline in seminary enrollment in the past 15 to 20 years in the West is due in part to the fact that pastor is no longer a respected vocation in many places. So young people who are excited about ministry may be saying, we want to do it for God, but our vocational choices are telling a different story. Whenever and wherever God becomes useful instead of worthy, we enter the realm of power religion. We are carrying the ark into this battle and saying, God has to come through, God has to fight on my side now. And once you go looking for this, I mean, it's everywhere. Parents mad at the church or mad at God because their kids didn't turn out as Christians. Couples mad at the church or mad at God because he wouldn't answer their prayers for a child, and so on. The Israelites thought, we can use God to our own ends. But we also learned something about God here, not just about ourselves. And it's this. God will not allow himself to be used like that. God will at times prefer to suffer shame and indignity rather than allow a false relationship to go on. See, the Israelites are doing the math in their head. If we bring the ark, God will be forced to intervene because he won't be willing to suffer the shame of being defeated, of having his ark captured by the Philistines. Guess what? Their math was wrong. What God wanted more is to have a true relationship with his people. He will let his ark be captured by a pagan army because he will not let himself be used by sinful men who did not care for his glory. I mean, it is a difficult truth we learn here that God will sometimes let his people be profoundly disappointed in him if it leads them and awakens them to the truth of who he is. I mean, let's not gloss over it. 30,000 Israelites died. That's the combined populations of Almont, Russell, Kempville, and Greeley, dead in one battle, all of them. And it says everyone else is fleeing for their homes in fear. The narrator says it's a very great defeat, which is, to put it mildly, God will sometimes, sometimes disappoint his people if it means breaking them of their false beliefs. And Israel just learns a very hard lesson that God cannot and he will not be leveraged. He won't let himself be used forever. So look, friends, we are invited to pray, to ask God for what we want. That's true. That's what the Bible says. We're invited to pour out the desires of our heart. There are parables and teachings that tell us to ask and to pray to God, but we are never to try and force him, to make demands of him, to, to try to leverage him. God is in heaven, we are on earth, and we ought not to forget that. That's power religion in the ark. Part two, Ichabod. 
you look at verse 12, it reads, it begins to read like the famous story of the Greek battle of Marathon. If you know that, that part of history, the Greeks win, it, win this great victory and, and one of their messengers runs, you know, about 40 kilometers to the waiting city of Athens and he comes into the city and like, we've won. And then, he, you know, he falls down dead and he's like this, this great hero. Now we, we run around, you know, because of him basically. But, but verse 12 of this story, it begins like that but it's not a tale of victory. It's not saying we, we defeated the Persians. It's a tale of tragedy. The man of Bethlehem runs from the battle to Shiloh where the tabernacle was. And it says he's got dirty, torn clothes. He's got, he's got dirt on his face. And the city gathers around like, what's happened? Yeah, I know and he said, no, it's, it's been a great defeat. Like everyone's dead, everyone's gone. And Eli, who's sitting maybe nearby, it's hard to picture it exactly, but the text says he's very old, he's overweight, he's nearly blind, or totally blind. He's, he calls for the messenger to come closer, and the messenger says, like, everything's gone wrong. We've lost, your sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. And at the news of the ark, Eli falls from his seat, he breaks his neck, and he dies. But that's not all, like, it gets worse. Phineas' wife, Phineas, this Eli's son, who, who's also a priest, she's very pregnant. She hears the news about her husband. She hears the news about the ark and her father-in-law and goes into spontaneous labor. And we're not told all the, the physiological or biological specifics, but her labor and her childbirth is about to kill her. And the midwives and the women who are helping her, they try to reassure her. They said, don't worry, you're going to have a son. In a patriarchal world, like to have a son, that was, that was the best news a mother could get. But it says she, she didn't care. She didn't listen to them. It's not important. And as she lies dying, she names the boy Ichabod. And Ichabod means no glory, or it means where is the glory. And she named him that because to her, the glory of God had departed the land. The priests were dead. The army was defeated. The ark was captured. Everyone who was alive was cowering fear. It's, it's just doom and darkness. The story ends in tragedy. I got two things I think we ought to take from this. First is a solemn reminder that God does keep his promises. We often like to consider God's faithfulness in keeping his promises in a more positive way. We, we remind each other sometimes, isn't it great that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us? It's great. It makes us feel comforted, comforted. But we also must remember that God has promised to punish the house of Eli and the sons of Eli for their sin. Remember, they were worthless, evil men. And God said, you're going to die on the same day. Hophni and Phinehas, you will die on the same day. And tragically, the word is fulfilled. We don't like to think about the sureness of God's judgment. But God's faithfulness to his promises and his word, it comes as a package deal. If over here we want to rest our life on his goodness and mercy, then, then the judgment of sin, you know, which is maybe over here, must come in the same breath. If we want to point to God's promise to Noah, he's not going to flood the world again in judgment. Like, oh, isn't that so comforting? We also must take to heart God's promise uh, in Corinthians that we will stand before his throne and receive reward or punishment. You don't get one without the other. It's, it's a package deal. It all comes together. And here we are reminded that God's word is true, that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. And second, this tragic tale helps us understand that God does chastise his people. The land of Israel, the whole land, had been walking in great darkness. Remember that last verse of Judges? We quote it just about every week. Everyone was doing right in their own eyes. Hophni and Phinehas were just a symptom of the problem. The whole nation was off track. They were wandering around like shepherdless sheep. 
And it's Phineas's wife who speaks the theological truth that's under this whole story. It's Ichabod that God is going to give up on his people for a time. He is going to remove from them his protective love and care, and he will give them over into the hands of their enemies. It's not easy to understand how or when, but the scriptures are clear. If a person or if a people continually tell God, we don't want you around, we don't want to listen to you, you aren't worth being worshipped, then eventually God sort of says, fine. He says, okay. And if you think, hey, that's Old Testament, I think things are different now uh, with Jesus as a long time ago. Look, we did a sermon series back in the fall in Revelation where Jesus warns churches, like, Modern churches, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand away. And what that meant in that context was, I'm going to de-church you. I'm going to write Ichabod over your sanctuaries, over your auditoriums, because I am going to abandon those places. See, it's not just an Old Testament story that, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that anymore. We live, as my friend George Sinclair likes to say, in the ruins and shards of Christendom. And all over our city, all over our province, are churches that metaphorically have Ichabod written all over them. Because they abandoned the faith, and at some point God just said, okay, there's no more glory here. The glory is leaving. It may look like a church, it may smell like a church, but it's just an empty shell. Ichabod. Jeremiah 7, this event becomes a warning to future generations. Later generations look back at the loss of the ark, and again, you know, sort of of ruin it, but the coming destruction of Shiloh by the Philistines as a warning for what happens when you abandon God. Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah 7, remember Shiloh, remember what God did there. It was Ichabod, the glory left. Think for a moment about the little baby named Ichabod. He comes into the world, as babies do, naked, but he also comes into the world alone. His mother is dead, his father is dead, his uncle is dead, his grandfather is dead. His people lie exposed to their enemies. There's no one to call on for help. This poor little baby is an image of Israel. Remember, like we talked about Hannah's barrenness, though it was real, it was also a picture of Israel's spiritual state. So this, too, this child, too, can be thought of as an image of Israel. They are alone and abandoned. They're, they are metaphorically naked, without help, without protection. They're orphaned. I just hope you feel some of the desperation that Israel must have felt. This is supposed to be a sad story. There's not a resolution coming. It's not a parable We learn in subsequent weeks, if you come back, the Israelites will suffer under Philistine oppression for 20 years. Decades of life. So what do we do with all of this? Let's just spin forward the clock of history for a moment to consider a few more Ichabods that come in the biblical story. Maybe just think about it in your head for a second. What other times in Israelites' history, as we move forward, do we see the glory of God leaving? Well, many years later, after a long period of sin and decline, another nation will invade Israel, right? Not from the south, but from the north. The Babylonians, they're going to sweep through the land, they're going to sack Jerusalem and take most of the population into exile. If you were trying to figure out where are the biggest Ichabods in Israelites' history, the Babylonian exile, it'd be right up at the top. There was no glory left. The land was left desolate and barren. But there was one greater, 
When Jesus Christ enters the world as a baby, the Apostle John in John 1 describes his coming by says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. When did the glory of God most directly and greatly reside with his people? It wasn't the ark. It wasn't the temple. It was in Emmanuel when God the Son came to be with us. And when the glory of God literally lived with us, the people, again in John 1, he says, the people put him to death because they loved the darkness, not the light. And if you think about the crucifixion for a moment, was there ever a time when we could have written Ichabod across a scene? Wasn't it during the death of Jesus? When the sun was blotted out and the earth shook and creation was sort of coming apart at the seams, was there ever a time in human history when the glory of God was more noticeably absent? It is at the cross that we ultimately say, there's no glory here. Where is the glory? It's just humiliation, it's shame, it's weakness. Yet, the Ichabod of Christ's crucifixion was different. For when Christ died, the iniquity of us all was laid on him. He was crucified outside the camp so that all of us who deserve his judgment might be saved. And so listen to me. Whenever our sins cry out Ichabod, whenever we say, God, get away from me, the gospel replies, Emmanuel, that God has come close to save us. That God Ichaboded himself to pay for our sins. He put aside his glory for us. See, the problem with this story is we see ourselves in it and we are guilty of what the Israelites did, that we've been using religion to get what we want. It's been a way for us not to love God, but to try to get stuff from God. But because of the gospel, we aren't abandoned. We aren't destroyed. We are sent as a new kind of Benjamite messenger. We run into every town and village we can find to announce not our victory, but his. And not, and not, not, uh, not by strength of arms, but that God has done something we could not, that God has laid aside his glory. God has Ichaboded himself for us. So may the Lord have mercy on us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you, and we are indeed grateful that you have laid aside your glory. The glory departed on the hill of Calvary that we might be brought close. That whenever our sins condemn us, we are reminded you are greater than our, greater than our sins. You have forgiven them. You are greater than our hearts. And we stand brought close but help us to take your punishment and your chastisement and your promises seriously. Help us not to be ungrateful, but to believe them and live by them. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.